Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, who knew that you could get autosomal DNA from hair without the roots? Hi, it's Fisher, and I'll be talking to Paul Woodbury, the DNA specialist at Legacy Tree Genealogist, about this remarkable breakthrough in DNA research. Plus, Maureen Taylor, the photo detective, is on to talk about this incredible new sharpening tool with MyHeritage. What can you do with that? That's all this week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, brought to you by FamilySearch.org. Discover, gather, connect, a presentation of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Hello, genies, and welcome back to another spine-tingling episode of Extreme Genes, America's Family History Show and ExtremeGenes.com. I am Fisher, your radio root sleuth on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out. And hope you're having a great 4th of July weekend. Hopefully you're finding something you can do. Somebody tried to light off some fireworks not far from where my daughter lives and set a whole mountainside on fire the other night. So maybe that's not something we want to play with. But it's great to have you along. We've got some great guests today. Paul Woodbury is going to be with us today talking about rootless hair. You know, it's always been said that you can't get DNA from hair without roots but it has now been used to solve the case of a missing Jane Doe. And we're going to talk to Paul about how this is done and why things have changed with that. Plus, there's an incredible new tool out on MyHeritage that sharpens your old fuzzy pictures in ways you've never seen before. We're going to talk to the photo detective Maureen Taylor about this new tool. And by the way, if you haven't signed up for our weekly Genie newsletter yet, this is a great time to do it because you got a lot of time on your hands. Just go to our website, ExtremeGenes.com, or on our Facebook page to get yourself signed up. Right now, it's off to Stoughton, Massachusetts, and the home base of my good friend David Allen Lambert, the chief genealogist of the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. Hi, David. How are you? Hey, I'm doing okay. I turned 51, and I've decided I'm going to reverse the numbers fish. I am now 15. <laughs> and do it all over again. Do it all <laughs> over again. You know, how many times have I thought about that? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, it's great to have you here. Are you going to be doing anything on the 4th? Well, let's see. Social distancing, no fireworks, probably just the family around the barbecue, and maybe a bonfire. And yeah. S'mores. <laughs> That's about it. Yeah, there's not much you can do this. I mean, it's just, how long can this go on? My goodness, it's just really obnoxious. I don't want to celebrate a year anniversary of being home in March. I can tell you that much. No, so. absolutely. All right. Well, let's get on with our family histoire news today. What do you have for us? Well, if you live near Eaton, Ohio, fish, you can actually do genealogy curbside. Yes, the Preble County Genealogy Room is now offering curbside genealogy services, including requests for birth, marriage, and death, cemetery obituary, census records, printed color copies at only 15 cents a page, and you can access forms and charts, and they'll bring it right out to your car. (laughs) (laughs) That's crazy. That's great. You know, I think it's fun, and I really wish I lived closer, and might have to give them a call because I want to see how popular it's become. That's that's kind of a cool little story. You know how we remember our mom and dad having cars when we grew up? Here's a story about Bobby Bonshack's latest purchase back in May. He went out and bought an old car, a 1974 Dodge Challenger. Well, it has a little personal history. It belonged to his dad. Yes, and his dad died when this guy was eight years old, and he saw pictures of him with it, and dad sold it, actually, when Bobby was a young kid, and so off it went. 
you know, I've often thought to myself, whatever happened to my dad's truck or this? And I always think that it became an aluminum garbage can that's probably somewhere out in the Midwest now. But it's great that you can pull that into your garage. And he has a photograph of his dad. His dad was a Vietnam vet and just got back from the Air Force. This is a real great connection. And hopefully this stays in the family. Yeah, this guy's from Oklahoma. And he tracked the car back to San Diego, California, because he found an old receipt from the original purchase of the car, and it had a VIN number mm-hmm. in it. And coincidence of coincidences, the car was for sale at that time. Wow. That's unbelievable. You know, I love Civil War stories, and I was a Civil War reenactor for a long amount of time. And occasionally, you know, I would go down south, and I would see the graves of Confederate soldiers, et cetera. But you wouldn't think you'd find any in Maine. <laughs> right. Seven graves of Confederate soldiers, some of which are even identified. There's a story, in fact, of one on Daniel Packard, who's from Garland, Maine. He was a native of Maine, moved to Florida before the Civil War with his brothers, and he joined the Confederate Army. But then he came back home and was buried there. So just when you think that everybody's below the Mason-Dixon line, some of them are up in northern New England in old Yankee country. It's just the thought of it. Seven Confederate soldiers buried in Maine. But there's always a case where they sent the wrong body up north. And there were unknown burials, and they opened up the casket for the funeral, and oops, no, that wasn't a person from Maine. It was probably for somebody that was down in Mississippi, and they wrote the wrong letter on it because they're in a Confederate uniform. So there are some unknown soldiers buried up there as well, and this is probably true. We probably have Union soldiers buried in Confederate cemeteries. Digging a little deeper, I always love a good Stonehenge story. Archaeologists found a massive ring of ancient shafts close to Stonehenge. And now they found these shafts, at least 20 of them, 32 feet in diameter, 16 feet deep, that form a circle about 1.2 miles in diameter. The ring surrounds the village of Durrington Walls, which is right near Stonehenge. So Stonehenge is a little bigger than they previously thought. Wow. And to find that out after all these years, I mean, they've been researching that place forever. History books are always kind of like the ink should still be wet because we're always making new discoveries. Well, you know, I love a good blogger spotlight, and it's been a while since we shined a light on anyone. And this time I'm going to shine it way over to England. To Jane Howe of Kent, England, who has a blog called allthosebefore.org.uk. Joseph Entwistle was her third great uncle, and family story has it that he was a joiner that made over 2,000 caskets. In fact, he even had one under his bed fish. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she decided to do some genealogy research, and she tracked down his original gravestone in a small churchyard in England, and you'll see a picture of it. It wasn't 2,000 caskets that he made. It was 6,600. Wow. Was he buried in his own is the question. It really is. All right, David, thank you so much. And, of course, you'll be back at the back end of the show as we do more of Ask Us Anything, talking about the revolution since it's the 4th of July weekend. Well, we just posted a story here this past week on ExtremeGenes.com about a cold case murder where the Jane Doe victim was identified using a rootless hair Rootless hair. We've always heard that you can't get DNA from hair without roots. And I've got Paul Woodbury on the line, the DNA specialist from my friends at Legacy Tree Genealogists. And Paul, I am confused. I've always heard you can't get DNA from rootless hair. What's gone on with this? Yeah, we have heard for a long time that rootless hair 
just doesn't really work for DNA analysis. And I think if you dig into it a little bit more, you can see that what they're using in this case, as well as in several other cases, so you know, this one is the most recent to hit the news, but this technique has actually been used as early as before the Golden State Killer. So it's been in use for, for a while, and it's pretty amazing what they're doing in being able to extract DNA from rootless hair. You are exactly correct that for a long time the scientific community has said it just can't be done. There's too little DNA. Or in some cases they've even gone so far as to say that hair that is not in a growth phase doesn't even carry nuclear DNA. They have pointed out that mitochondrial DNA testing, yes, is an option for rootless hair, but they kind of draw the line at autosomal, and that is not the case anymore, it appears, that we have been able to successfully pull autosomal DNA from rootless hair, which is a pretty amazing feat. Do you see an application coming up for genealogy potentially from this? So if we had, for instance, some hair from... A great-great-grandfather or great-great-grandmother that we might be able to do something with it? I think that it's certainly a, a possibility for the future right now. I think it's still in the early phases. Reading some of the other articles about this technique, I've discovered that there's high demand. And <laughs> Dr. Ed Green, the, the person who really developed some of the technology and the approaches that enabled us, his lab is pretty slammed for demand on some of the cases they're pursuing with this technique right now. So I don't know how long it'll take for this to be publicly available to the general user. And, and currently, the cost is quite expensive. It's around several thousand dollars for Ooh. each hair strand to analyze. So it is quite expensive, but we've seen it before. I mean, uh, whole genome sequencing used to be uh, through the roof, and now it is well within reach of the general population to, to be able to pursue that. So we just see the continued downward trend of cost for genetic testing and genetic genealogy testing. So I, I think eventually I, I, I would not be surprised if this does become an option for genetic genealogy. Wow, that is a uh, an incredible thought. I, I'd never considered the possibility. Of course, we know now we've got labs opening up that are going to be able to test people's old hats and earrings and things like this. Envelopes, obviously, but uh, I don't think we ever considered hair. And you think about it, Paul, how many old family Bibles have little chunks of hair that people just saved in there from babies or from ancestors? Yeah, or the Victorian hair wreaths right? Yeah. Um, often people will, would come to us and, and ask, I have a hairbrush from my ancestor. Do you think we could get something from that? And consistently over the past several years, we've often said, unless there is a root on that hair, it's very hard to get DNA out of that. But I think the technology is progressing to a point that eventually that will become possible. Wow. Well, that's exciting stuff. And I'm looking forward to uh, hearing more about how they're able to make this work. So let's talk about some other things today, Paul. We've seen in the past where a lot of people have gotten their DNA test results back saying, you got to do it again. What's that all about? Well, I think this actually ties in nicely to, to our discussion of rootless hair because 
your DNA samples, when you, you know, take a test and you send it into the lab and you're expecting your, your test results to come back and instead you get an email that's disappointing that says, we weren't able to run your sample, it failed, we weren't able to get high quality DNA out of it, you'll need to take another sample, that can be a little discouraging. But the underlying issue is that it's how much DNA they're able to get out of your sample. And with rootless hair, with fingernails, with different types of cells in our body, there are some cells, some fluids that contain a lot more DNA than others. And rootless hair is one of the types of DNA that has the least amount of autosomal DNA that we're actually trying to look at as part of genetic genealogy tests. Fingernails, skin, a lot of the times those cells have died and the process of degradation of the DNA has already commenced. And so that's one of the reasons that we don't often go for those as our first choice when we're pursuing genetic genealogy testing. For genetic genealogy testing, most of the time what we're using is a spit sample or a cheek swab. And those samples pull from two sources of cells in our body. Most of the cells and the DNA that we get from those sampling processes come from white blood cells, which are included in our saliva and our spit, as well as epithelial buccal cells or cheek cells, um, <laughs> the gum line of our cheek. So when you do a spit test, most of the cells in that are going to come from your white blood cells. When you do a cheek swab, you'll get a kind of a mix of both. There's a few reasons why people may have problems when we do those types of sampling processes. If they've brushed their teeth recently before providing the sample, that will wash a lot of the cells that would be going into the sample out of your mouth and now we have nothing to really collect there. So oh. uh, brushing your teeth, drinking within a half an hour before you perform the test, eating. Eating also it can introduce foreign chemicals, bacteria, that can interfere and that can cause your DNA to degrade. Smoking can cause cell death and can result in problems there. Chewing gum, mouthwash, anything that introduces different chemicals or foreign particles into your mouth can interfere with the DNA analysis later on. And something else to keep in mind is that any meat, any vegetable, any organic material that you eat also has DNA. Right, so right. That can cause problems for us when we're sending in our sample and you say, you come back 50% beef, you know, so <laughs> um, <laughs> not really, but it, it can mess up some of the analyses that we try to perform there. So to get the best success for your DNA test, avoid brushing your teeth, drinking water, smoking, eating, chewing gum, using mouthwash, avoid doing anything in your mouth <laughs> for at least a half an hour before you take your DNA test, and that will increase the chances that you're able to have a successful run. You wouldn't get the full profile then, potentially, right? What, what percentage of tests come back like that? You know, I'm not sure, and I think it probably depends on the company. From my own experience, I'd say probably one in a hundred. And keep in mind that it's not that they're unable to get any DNA out of it. It's that they're not able to get high enough quality copies of your DNA out of that sample. You know, they still may be able to get some DNA out of it, but it's not to their quality assurance standards. Sure. 
and what they are going to be able to report back. And so they have to get you to a certain threshold in order to feel confident in, in what they're reporting to you. And something else to keep in mind with that is another common reason why people may have a failure with their DNA samples is if they've had a blood transfusion right. <laughs> or they've had a bone marrow transplant, blood transfusions from somebody else because a lot of the cells that we're testing as part of a spit test or a buccal swab are from your white blood cells. They are going to contain the DNA of your blood transfusion donor. That effect wears off over time. So several months after your blood transfusion, you should be okay to take a DNA sample and and it should show your DNA. Bone marrow transplants, on the other hand, are permanent. And Wow, so they become a part back. of you. Your donor would become a part of you. Yeah, your donor's DNA becomes a part of your DNA because the blood comes from the bone marrow, and, and as a result of that, the DNA in your blood will show your donor's DNA. And the DNA in your other cells may show your DNA, but it'll be a mixture, and it won't meet the quality. Wow. Have you ever heard of uh, somebody being accused of a crime who went through a bone marrow transplant and the crime scene DNA matched? Because that could happen, right? I, I might have. I, I, yeah. I know at least that that is a common consideration, and that's something that forensic researchers and forensic professionals often are trying to consider is, is there a possibility of a bone marrow transplant? You could also wind up matching to other people, I would assume, right? Have we seen that? Yes, we have seen that. You've seen that where you've actually matched to people who are related to the person who donated the bone marrow. Yep. Wow. That would change things, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. The last thing that I would say is one of the major reasons that people's samples fail actually has nothing to do with the test collection process itself, but just with the registration of the kit. <laughs> oh, yeah. I can't tell you how many times people have come to me and say, I, well, I took the test and I sent it in and I never heard anything back. And I said, well, did you register your kid online? And that is a really important step. Most of the companies say, do this first, log in, create an account with the company, register your kit. And that's the only way that they can assign your test results to you. That's how they're able to securely and privately make sure that you're the only one who gets access to your test results. That makes so, sense. And that is a prerequisite for some companies. They won't run kits that have not yet been registered. Sure. So make sure that you fill out that form and register your kit so that you can make sure that you are all set to receive the information that you're seeking. Paul, great to talk to you again. Thanks so much. Appreciate you coming on, and we'll chat again soon. Thank you. Well, it seems like just a few months ago, because it was, that MyHeritage came out with an amazing new tool to colorize your old black and white pictures. And uh, so many of them come out really, really well. Well, wouldn't you know, they came out with another tool and... Who would have imagined how cool this one is? I've got my good friend, the photo detective, Maureen Taylor, on the line with me right now. Maureen, are you digging this new tool from MyHeritage? Oh, my goodness, Scott. It is amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. I'm finding that for group shots, you know, in group shots, and then you try to enlarge an individual's face, they get a little fuzzy. 
right? And the older ones, perhaps, uh, you know, are a little spotty, maybe some lines. Well, they've got this new tool on MyHeritage, and it sharpens these pictures, and it is astounding what you can do when you enhance it that way and then colorize it. I took one of my grandmother. I know I shared it with you, Maureen, because it's phenomenal how clear it makes her look. I can see her at 19 years old in color in perfect clarity from 1900. So I like the colorizing tool. I do, because it gives you another way of looking at your pictures. Yep. But when I got the press release for the enhancement tool, and then I put it to work, <laughs> I couldn't believe what I was able to do. And then if you add the colorizing yep, to it. Yep, on top of it. It's incredible. On top of it it, it, it seems to sharpen it even more. And you see things in the picture you don't otherwise see. I don't know why that is. It's just, I guess, the eye catches things not only based on contrast, but based on color as well. And uh, and it doesn't work for everything. It's funny. I had one group picture where I uh, actually ran it through the enhancer twice because I didn't think it was quite as clear as it could be. And mm-hmm. it, <laughs> it really changed what they looked like quite a bit. It made the jowls suddenly stick out and the, the eyes were closer together and somebody suddenly wearing glasses where it's just a shadow in the other picture. So it's not perfect. You only want to use it one time on a photo and see what it does. But nonetheless, I can tell you, if you go through and try this thing, you're going to find some that's, that's just going to make your jaw drop. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. It's machine learning, right? It's an yep. algorithm. So it's going to get smarter the more pictures it looks at and fixes. And I am not going to learn how to use Photoshop. It's just, <laughs> I, I just, I just am not. I mean, yes, it's a photo tool and I can't imagine spending all these hours and days and weeks and months learning Photoshop, but this tool, it does it for you. Yeah. You just push one button and, and there it is. So I've been sharing it with a lot of people in my membership and the groups and they're all just playing with their own pictures right now. And it's all coming back as great feedback. And uh, hats off to my heritage for making this happen. Well, here's my funny enhancement story. I'm the photo detective, right? Yeah. And I have this little snapshot and it's a man up on a really long extension ladder painting a house. And I had always been told it was my dad. Now, it's a tiny little snapshot, and his head, it looks like a pinprick. And I have looked at it under a magnifier, and I've blown it up, and it's fuzzy and the whole thing. So I was like, huh, I wonder what it can do. Ran it through the enhancement tool and discovered it's not my dad on the ladder after all. It was his cousin. (laughs) You (laughs) could recognize him. You mean to say it focused it so well you could differentiate who was in it? Pretty much. Wow. That's incredible. Pretty much. One of the things about this, though, is that the finished result is much smaller than the original in terms of, you know, Mm -hmm. pixels and that type of thing. So I'm finding some of the ways that you can maybe save a larger version of it is to just basically take a screenshot as you enlarge it on your computer and then you can do it that way. So, yeah, obviously they only have so much storage there that they can do this with. But it's amazing. And the beauty of it is, did I mention it's free, just like the color enhancer? You get so many trials yeah. before you have to buy a paid subscription to MyHeritage. And there are other tools out there that you can use in conjunction with this, mm-hmm. like Vivipix. It's not an yep. either-or situation. You can use one and then enhance it even further with the other. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. 
I was just showing my wife this morning these combinations of uh, pictures with my grandmother in the original picture, then the enhancement, and then the colorizer, and she was just in shock. And I just thought, you know, back in the day when we started on all this, back in the 1980s, you couldn't even imagine things like this. We paid, I want to say, $150 to somebody to take an original picture that was pretty beaten up and take a photo of it, make a negative, make a print, and then paint it and correct what was supposed to be in there. I yeah. mean, it was a ton of money, 150 bucks. This was inconceivable. Inconceivable. Yeah, absolutely. And so here we are. And it makes you wonder, because after the colorizer came out, I thought, well, what else could there possibly be to work on oh, photographs, have, you know? Oh, they have some other things up their sleeve that I can't talk about. But oh, don't wait, say, don't wait, wait, wait. Don't do that to me. Don't do that to my to it. my people here. There's more? I think they're working on some more things. But but here's the thing. I'm going to talk about the ins and outs of this program and the, and the colorizer, of course, because I use them in conjunction. Uh, on the My Heritage Facebook page, we're doing a Facebook Live at 2 o'clock Eastern on July 8th. Okay. And it's free because it's on their Facebook page, so anyone can go on and watch. I'm actually working on the presentation right now. So I have this whole list of photos from my research collection and family collection that I'm actually running through the enhancer right now to sort of put it to the test. And and are you basically figuring out what works and what doesn't? Because there there are some it doesn't seem to make much difference with, but others... Yeah, I just had one of those. It's too blurry. Or you get some that are just crisp enough already. You don't see much of a difference. No, you don't. But kudos to my heritage for thinking outside the box. Because who would have thought they could actually automate colorizing a photograph and then automate enhancing one? The question for you is, is this another company that they've partnered with like they did with a colorizer? Ooh, you know, I forgot to ask that question. Probably, but mm-hmm. I don't know the answer. I will find out for the eighth. So. Okay. <laughs> better know that, right? <laughs> I better know that. <laughs> I better know that. Well, it's great. Partnerships are what's making everything happen in the field right now. I mean, Family Search started partnering with Ancestry and then MyHeritage, and now they're all exchanging stuff. And it's been to the good for every single company and organization and for the best for all of us, right, who've been doing this forever yeah. and, and benefit from it. Whether they developed it themselves or put together a partnership to make it happen, doesn't make any difference. In fact, I think it's even better with a partnership. I think the spirit of collaboration yeah. strong and we all benefit from it them and us yeah absolutely true and some of the pictures you can run this through and you can see what your people would have looked like it colors their eyes and colors their hair and when it's in perfect clarity to look in the eyes of somebody that you knew was your ancestor in the 1870s it's a phenomenal thing and it, you just stare at it and go my gosh they look like real people not just mannequins standing there posing how long did they have to keep the shutter open back then Mm, it depends. It depends on the time period. But I will say that these tools give us a new way of seeing our family photographs. Yeah. So I want to talk about a funny thing, which is the Library of Congress blog. If you are not familiar with it, Scott, go on the Library of Congress website into the blog, and then they have a mystery photo contest. And so they've been featuring a lot of photographs, and they've been working on actresses and actors <laughs> that they have pictures of and they want to identify. They don't know who that. Wait a minute. What chance do we have then, right? I mean, we always well, talk. These, that's the fascinating thing about who finds the answers, who knows the answers. It's about our collective brains, the right. hive brain. But there's this lovely young woman, it uh, looks like a 1975 picture, and everybody said, wow, she looks so familiar, but nobody knows who she is. It's all about the conversation. 
Six months later, a woman writes in and says, that's a very nice photo of me. Thanks. I hadn't seen it before. That was a picture of her. It is a riot. Wow. She's Maureen Taylor. She's the photo detective. You can follow her at MaureenTaylor.com and uh, look for her on the 8th on that Facebook page with MyHeritage talking about the new enhancement tool. Thanks for your time, Maureen. Always great to talk to you. Thank you, Scott. And it is time once again for Ask Us Anything on Extreme Genes, America's Family History Show. It is Fisher here, your radio root sleuth. I've got David Allen Lambert on the line from the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. He is the chief genealogist. And uh, David, we have a question from Lena in Port Arthur, Texas. And with this being the 4th of July weekend, it's very appropriate. She says, lesser known sources for pensions for revolutionary soldiers, what would some of them be? That's a great question because we always want to develop something new, right? Well, that's true. I mean, and I think that a lot of times people think that, you know, their ancestor had a pension automatically for serving in the war. Well, if they died soon after, unless they were an officer... They didn't get one fish. I mean, there were strict pension rules that were in the 18th century, around the time of the war. For officers, they got half pay if they were injured. And then for the widows and children, they got part of the pay for a certain amount of time. But in regards to regular soldiers, like if you served in the Massachusetts militia and you served two months, you didn't even qualify for a pension based on your service until 1818 when the Congress passed an act. So you may have got something different, bounty land. Bounty land was handed out early on. A lot of the states and, of course, the federal government was giving out land because, well, they had the land, but they didn't have the money. And people would get their bounty land. Now, the bounty land records for the military side don't really exist. In fact, if you look at a lot of the indexes like Virgil White's abstracts of Revolutionary War pensions, it will say BLW and a number will say no papers. And the reason it says that is because in 1800, there was a fire in the War Department in Washington. And as luck would have it, the British came back and burnt Washington in 1814. And any papers that were put together in those years were also lost. Oh, wow. So a lot of times when you're looking for proof that your ancestor got a bounty land, I mean, there are later claims. So you can get those from the National Archives. But if you're looking in the deeds and you can't find your ancestor buying the land, Look at the bounds of the land. It might say in it historically that this is a bounty land warrant that I received for my father's service in the Revolutionary War, and it may say the number. So that's how we're rediscovering a lot of these early, not really pensions, but bounty lands, which are a pension alternative when there aren't any papers in Washington to look for. The other thing, if you've got a bounty land fish, say, for instance, you were now 85 years old, you got land in Ohio, you're living in Connecticut. Do you want to go to Ohio? Probably not. <laughs> there are ads throughout the newspapers, you know, the way they buy gold, you know, I'll buy your junk gold, blah, blah, blah. That's in the newspapers now. Yeah, they had ads in the paper back then. Cash for your bounty land. And they would just give the soldier the money they got for the value of it, probably not as much as it's truly worth. And they, in turn, would sell it. And it would still have reference that this was the bounty land connected to a particular soldier and the number associated with it. So you can still find it reversing it that way with deeds. Wow. That, that sounds like actually a really fun process, especially to know what the land was that your Revolutionary War ancestor owned. And that you're right. That is a part of a pension, isn't it, really? It's a reward. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. And then a lot of times states 
didn't have the financial means, let alone the federal government. There's a book by Lloyd Boxtrop, and Lloyd is unfortunately passed on, but his book, State Awarded Bountylands, is a book I think that was published by the genealogical publishing company, GPC, out of Maryland. And that has alphabetically each one of the soldiers, the state, and the number associated with it, and I think the acreage as well. So that's a good place to start. Well, there you go. That's a lesser-known source, and I've never heard that myself. So thank you very much for that, and thanks for the question, Lena. And, uh, David, our second question today for Ask Us Anything comes from Jonathan in Boise, Idaho. He says, guys, I'm uh, thinking of joining the SAR, the Sons of the American Revolution, and I'm seeing that there is a way to qualify ancestors for membership by something called patriotic service. What are some of those services that ancestors would have provided, and how do I find out if they did it? Great question, Jonathan. Yeah, really good question. One of the things that you could have done simply was to sign an association test or a loyalty oath in your state. Some of these survive, saying that you're loyal to the cause. didn't pick up a musket, but you were not going to become a loyalist. You weren't going to support the British in any way, shape, or form. And and in New Um, York, by the way, that would be the Revolutionary Pledge, they called it. That was signed in 1775, mm -hmm. and I had one of my ancestors who signed that. Mm -hmm. And this is a perfect way of getting in. It's cut and dry. Then you just have to prove, you know, generation like you would for a soldier all the way down to you with all the documents. The other thing is supplying something to the state or continental troops. So if you supplied horses or you've got some record that you were compensated for, maybe the troops stayed in your barn or you fed them, you gave them a wagon or muskets, whatever the case might be, that's considered patriotic service too. One of my wife's ancestors was actually providing bacon to the Continental Army, and that got him in. (laughs) <laughs> Great. I love that. Bacon is important. It is Even important. In 1775. Yep, exactly. <laughs> Another thing could just be doing civic duty. Now, if you served on a jury, if you were part of town government, or if the colonial government was operating in any way, shape, or form, that counts too. So if you find your ancestor even doing something as simple as paying local taxes, that is supporting the cause. Isn't that interesting? And and for many of these people, these are older folks who weren't really physically capable of being in the Revolutionary Army. So this Mm -hmm. is the way they contributed, and this is the way they are recognized by not only the sons of the American Revolution, but the daughters as well. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the housing thing. I had an ancestor Mm -hmm. in New York City who housed a bunch of uh, New Jersey soldiers who had been assigned to go out there and protect Manhattan Island against the British attack that was impending. And so that would qualify him just right there. There were other things he did. For instance, he engraved the Continental Dollar. He was the engraver for that, so that qualified him. But putting up soldiers in your house, that's a pretty good sign they did patriotic service and they were supporting the cause. I think that continental dollar is a great thing. Do you own one of those? No, I couldn't possibly afford to own one of those. <laughs> They're very <laughs> valuable. Kidney to sell? Oh, yeah. He's got his initials on there, Elisha Gallaudet. He's a fifth grade grandfather. Great story behind that and how he escaped to New Jersey. And there's not much out there about him, although I published a story about him in the New York Genealogical and Biographical Society record about oh, 15 years ago. But it, it's an amazing story. 
Oh, that's excellent. So if you're looking for additional people to join the DAR or the SAR, look at those people that were alive in 1775 to 1783. You may have an additional propositi to join. <laughs> a, a what? Or, or uh, wait, 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 wait. A proposite? What is that? Now, that's just a fancy term we use. Basically, somebody (laughs) should be proposed to a proposite to join. A proposite. All right, David, get out of here. We're out of time. Jonathan, thank you for the question. And, of course, if you have a question for Ask Us Anything, you just email us at askusanything at extremegenes.com. Hey, that's our show for this week. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks once again to Paul Woodbury and Maureen Taylor, our guests this week. Talk to you again next week. And remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to familysearch.org.